In the first two parts of our Pike River series, we spent most of our time talking about what happened at the mine. In part one, you heard about the events in the minutes, hours and days following the explosion. And in part two, we went right back to the beginning, to when work began at the mine, and you heard what happened in the months leading up to the disaster. In this episode, you'll hear why this tragedy occurred. We're going to take a deep dive into not only the technical causes of the failure, but also the organisational causes. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Welcome to part three, the final part of our Pike River series. In today's episode, we bring this story to a close. We examine what took place on November 19, 2010. I think one of the overarching feelings you get as you step through this Pike River incident is that it feels almost impossible to meaningfully pull together all the strands of what happened to cause this disaster. I think it's very tempting to step through this very long list of things that went wrong at the mine and say, well, that's what caused the incident. As you heard in the last episode, there were issues with gas drainage, issues with ventilation, and there was alarm after alarm going off demonstrating they were experiencing gas exceedances. When you get so much wrong with methane management, it feels almost inevitable that the mine will blow up. But we need to be careful with this view. One danger is that if you're involved in coal mining, you'll almost say that what happened there couldn't happen in your mine because you have better systems in place. Another danger of this view is that it doesn't tell us why so many people at the mine, at almost all levels, behaved the way they did. Why did the mine not do the basics well when it came to methane management? Why did the men keep working while they were getting so many methane alarms? And where was the regulator while all this was going on? Why didn't they shut down the mine? And I think it's in attempting to answer these questions that some of the real learnings from this disaster will become apparent. Now, before we go any further, we need a word of caution, a similar word to what you heard in the last episode. It's simply not possible in a podcast of this length to cover everything that happened and went wrong at Pike River. So as before, we'll be leaving plenty of material out. And if you want to learn more, then we've placed a link to the Royal Commission report in the show notes. So to begin this discussion of the organisational causes of the disaster, we need to start with the mine's production problems. So back in May 2007, Pike River issued a prospectus as part of their public share offering. And in it, they listed some of their coal production targets. In 2008, they planned to produce 243,000 tonnes of coal. In 2009, they projected 1 million tonnes. And in 2010, they projected another million tonnes. So adding that all up, between 2008 and the end of 2010, they planned to produce two and a quarter million tonnes of coal. But none of this happened. Instead of shipping two and a quarter million tonnes of coal, they shipped less than 50,000 tonnes. 
they shipped only 2% of what they'd planned. And the reason for this was that the hydro mining that was supposed to commence in the first quarter of 2009 didn't happen. And by 2010, it was still behind schedule. But one of the main reasons for the delay had been issues with the design, manufacture, delivery and commissioning of the equipment that was needed for the mining. So here's a mine that's failing to meet its production targets by a large margin. And with that in mind, let's recap what's happening in the mine around this time in July 2010. This is two months before hydro mining begins and about four months before the explosion. They need to get hydro mining up and running, but there's lots of challenges with their system. And there are plenty of other problems in the mine too. The commissioning of the main fan won't start until October, but they want to begin hydro mining before that. This leaves the secondary fan on the surface as the only fan providing ventilation. But it's a small fan, and it's already at capacity. This means that with the ventilation at capacity, there's a heightened risk of methane exceedances, which obviously carries with it the risk of explosions. There are also problems with gas drainage, and there are issues with training. Training is falling behind partly due to an increase in the workforce, combined with miners being unable to get training time because of production commitments. Contractors make up a significant part of the workforce. Nearly half the men underground at the time of the explosion are contractors, but they aren't always given the same training as employees, for example in induction training or in how to use self-rescuers. On top of this, 40 to 50% of the miners at Pike are clean skins, with little or no mining experience. So the more experienced miners don't have sufficient time to teach and mentor them. Controllers aren't given adequate training in the gas monitoring systems, despite requesting it. And from October 2010, Pike moved to a 24-hour operation, so there's even less time to train the hydro mining crews. And it's against this background, with all of these issues unresolved, that the board at Pike River make a decision. They introduce a bonus for the workers to get the hydro mining underway. So how did this bonus work? Well, each miner would get $13,000 if 1,000 tonnes of coal was achieved by the 3rd of September 2010. And if this target of 1,000 tonnes of coal wasn't achieved by that date, then the bonus would decrease every week that production was delayed. For example, if it was delayed by one week, it would decrease from $13,000 down to $12,000. The following week, it would be down to $11,000. After the 24th of September, it would drop by $2,500 per week, and by the 6th of November, it would be zero. Now, this bonus was going to cost the company $2.3 million, but the board took the view that they needed to address credibility problems because of overpromising and underdelivering. Now, the Royal Commission into the incident found three issues with this bonus. The first one was that it didn't give sufficient consideration to the ventilation requirements for the hydro mining. So hydro mining began on the 19th of September, and that was two weeks before commissioning of the main fans started on the 4th of October. And once they started hydro mining, it became apparent very quickly 
that they were releasing large volumes of gas and the existing ventilation system was really struggling. So the bonus drove the workers to hit a target, but the overarching ventilation system was becoming inadequate to allow that target to be met safely. The second issue that the Royal Commission had with the bonus was that the board failed to address that it placed undue focus on production, with safety being the victim. Now, interestingly, the chair of the board said that there would be no reason why there'd be any relaxation in health and safety attention. But as you'll hear in a moment, anything that interfered with production would be ignored, including methane alarms. And the third issue the Royal Commission had was that by the time the bonus was introduced, the board and the senior management were not assured that mining could be undertaken safely. In fact, a number of risk assessments undertaken before mining began confirmed that it couldn't. These risk assessments identified very significant safety issues at the mine. Some critical systems were not in place yet, and others were not working properly. Most of these issues were not addressed before hydro mining began. Now, if we just take a sidestep here, where in all this is the regulator? We know from the last episode there were numerous gas exceedances, and we're going to spend some time on them in a moment, but why didn't the regulator do anything about them? And how much did the regulator actually know about what was happening in the mine? So the Department of Labour, who was the regulator, had to ensure Pike River was a legally compliant coal mine. The first workplace inspection they undertook was back in early 2007, when the drift was under construction, and since then mining inspectors conducted quarterly inspections. Now there were many issues going on with the regulator. One was that it was a regulator in decline. At the time of the explosion there were only two inspectors covering all mines and quarries in New Zealand. Neither of them had any hydro mining expertise, and they didn't have enough expertise to adequately assess all of the major hazards in the underground coal mine, or the controls that managed these hazards. Another issue was that the regulator assumed that Pike was a best practice and compliant employer. This meant that the inspectors adopted a low-level compliance approach. Indeed, the inspectors were praised by the department for following the modern regulator view and working with voluntary compliance. For example, the Royal Commission found that the regulator's strategy didn't require an assessment of Pike's safety and operational information. The inspectors didn't have a system training or time to do so. The commission goes on to say that this was not a case of individual fault, but of a departmental failure to resource, manage and adequately support a diminished mining inspectorate. And on top of all of this, not only were they not proactive in finding out what was happening at the mine, it would also turn out they were not told about all the methane exceedances either. So that was the regulator. Let's look at the board of Pike River. Well, at a board level, there was no one with any experience in the local underground coal mining industry. But despite this, the chair of the board said that the board were keenly aware of the risks posed by methane. But how did they ensure these risks were managed? Well, the board was receiving monthly health and safety data from the mine. But this would turn out to be mainly data on personal injury rates and time lost through incidents. There was nothing in the information they were receiving to ascertain the risk of a catastrophic incident. They didn't receive information on the effectiveness of their crucial systems, such as gas monitoring and ventilation, nor did they receive any analysis on their high potential incidents, the very incidents that were likely to tell them where their system was vulnerable. 
And while they didn't receive this information, they didn't seek it out either. The Royal Commission found that the chairperson of the board's general attitude was that things were under control unless told otherwise. This view, coupled with the approach taken by executive managers, exposed the workers at Pike River to health and safety risks. So now you have a bonus introduced to drive production. You have a mine that has insufficient ventilation capability. You have a greater focus on production rather than safety. And you have a whole range of risk assessments that say many things have to happen before hydro mining can start. But these are largely ignored. And on top of all this, you have a regulator with a lack of resources that didn't have an accurate risk profile of the mine because they weren't being told what was happening on site. So let's look at what happened in the rush to get production up and running. So on September 19, hydro mining begins and 140 tonnes of coal are produced. And over the next two months, there's a sustained push to hit the production targets. But there is a huge range of problems, like equipment issues and a lack of experience in the crews operating the equipment. Soon, they move to a 24-hour production cycle, with even less time available for mentorship and training. And it was during this push that the methane levels in the mine regularly rose to explosive levels. The hydro mining consultant, Masaoki Nishioka, who you heard about in the last episode, recorded that methane levels in the 14 days between the 20th of September to the 15th of October exceeded 5% on nine occasions. Some of these exceedances leading up to the 24th of September worried Mr. Nishioka so much that he recommended that the operation be stopped until the main fan became operational. This didn't happen. Despite exceedances, the workers kept the pressure on until Friday the 1st of October until the bonus was achieved. So to me, it's clear that in this bonus period, hitting the bonus target was far more of a focus than methane alarms going off. And to try and understand what's going on here, let's speculate a little. Firstly, I think the bonus sent a very clear message from the top of the organisation to the workers that production was much more important than safety. And I think you can say this because despite risk assessments identifying a range of serious safety issues, these were not dealt with before production began. Secondly, it was during the push to hit the bonus targets that methane exceedances became more frequent and they became normalised. So why do I say they were normalised? But well, we know there were plenty of exceedances while the bonus was in place. But after this bonus period, these exceedances appear to have become simply part of how the mine operated. Between the 3rd of October and the 19th of November, the day of the explosion, deputies' handheld detectors reported readings that were 2% or higher on 48 occasions in 48 days. Now, miners were required by law to withdraw from the mine if flammable gas reaches 2% or more in the general body of air but they certainly didn't happen on all occasions. And some deputies did report these exceedances, but the information in the reports was not reaching or being heeded by management. Senior managers didn't have an adequate system to identify and respond to safety information. One worker said that written reports of sensors being bypassed would just disappear without any response from management. Part of the problem was that, as you heard in the last episode, there was no dedicated ventilation officer at the mine to look at all the information that was being reported. 
And also, on 21 occasions in these 48 days, there were readings of 5% or higher. And remember, the maximum these sensors can read is 5%. Now, Pike should have notified the Department of Labour about these exceedances, but didn't. To me, this is normalisation. And this form of normalisation has a specific name. It was coined by Diane Vaughan and it's called normalisation of deviance. And it's defined as a gradual process by which unacceptable practice or standards become acceptable. And the reason they become acceptable is because as the behaviour is repeated, without there being catastrophic results, it becomes the social norm in the organisation. Think about it this way. You've just had several gas exceedances in the past several days and nothing bad has happened. Why would something bad happen now? And this sort of thing is actually worse than it sounds. Normalisation suggests that every time a gas sensor goes off, it's not only not a concern, it can actually be taken as a sort of perverse proof that the mine won't blow up. The more times a sensor goes off and nothing bad happens, the more likely it appears to people that nothing bad will happen. This form of normalisation reduces people's perception of the risk around them. There's a quote by James Reason which I think really sums up what happens to people when their perception of risk decreases. Reason says, Accidents do not happen because people gamble and lose. They occur because people do not believe that the accident that is about to happen is at all possible. And to highlight this point about perception of risk, here's another quote. Douglas White, the mine manager at Pike River, appeared at the Royal Commission hearings. He was asked about whether or not he thought the second means of escape from the mine was adequate in the event of an emergency. In his reply, he said, I think it's fair to say that having never actually considered the possibility of the mine blowing up, it was not a matter that overly concerned me. Russell Smith is late for work. Daniel Rockhouse is deep in the mine refueling his vehicle. And scattered underground working are another 29 men. They're believed to be at eight separate locations. Up in the control room, Daniel Duggan receives word over the comm that maintenance work has been completed and water can be restored to the mine. At 3.44pm, he activates the start sequence for the pump system that supplies the water. And then he goes on the comm to communicate the news to those working underground. While he's talking to Malcolm Campbell, there's an unidentified sound. This is the methane explosion. And from that point onwards, Duggan loses all comms with the mine. Underground, but Rockhouse and Smith see a blinding light and they're hit by a sustained pressure wave that lasts 52 seconds. Now, the expert panel assembled by the Royal Commission believe that this blinding light and pressure wave were caused by a methane explosion deeper in the mine. And I use the word believe because a lot of what you're going to hear now cannot be definitively proven. Because at the time of writing, it hasn't been possible to get back into the mine and collect evidence. 
but the expert panel believed this explosion happened because of an accumulation of methane gas that was caused by a roof fall in the Gulf. Now, if you remember in our last episode, we spoke about hydromanning and how as the coal is removed, the area left behind is called the Gulf, and this is allowed to collapse in on itself. So the expert panel believe there was methane in the Gulf. Then there was a roof fall in the Gulf, and this had the effect of flushing out the gas and causing it to accumulate quickly. Now, this former roof fall had happened over a month earlier in the mine. So that's the methane. What about the ignition source? What ignited this methane? And here the expert panel begins to get very speculative, again because they weren't able to get back into the mine at the time. Now as you heard in part two, you don't need a lot of energy in your ignition source to cause an explosion. The battery in your wristwatch has enough power to do it. So they looked at various potential ignition sources, such as spontaneous combustion of coal, miners bringing contraband underground like cigarettes, as well as conveyor belt heating. Some of these were considered unlikely sources, while some were considered more likely. But the source believed most likely was an electrical source. So why then does the expert panel believe this? Well, the primary reason they do is due to the timing of the explosion. So stepping back a little, on the day of the explosion, the supply of fluming waters of the mine was cut around 12.20pm. This was for a planned service shutdown of the surface coal preparation plant. Then, as you heard earlier, very shortly before 3.45pm, Daniel Duggan was advised in the control room that the water supply was back on. He switched on the number one fluming pump and got on the comm to the mine. Now, data shows that the startup signal from the control room initiated the number one fluming pump startup sequence. But seconds later, all power to the mine was lost and circuit breakers at the portal substation tripped. It was this coincidence, the timing of switching on the pump and the timing of the explosion that persuaded the expert panel that an electrical cause was the most likely ignition source. At some point during or after the pressure wave, Russell Smith loses consciousness beside his loader in the drift. He had tried to reach his self-rescuer to put it on, but he couldn't get to it in the cramped confines of his loader. Daniel Rockhouse was able to take out his self-rescuer, but he said it wasn't working. Now, the Royal Commission report says very little about whether or not these self-rescuers were working or not, and this is presumably because they weren't able to examine them as part of the investigation at the time. But while it's unclear whether or not they were working, what is clear was that there was issues with training and their importance and their use. For example, you heard in the first episode how Matthias Stridum entered the mine following the explosion without taking a self-rescuer with him. Why would you do that if your training had been adequate? And Daniel Rockus had used a dummy self-rescuer in the past during training, but he said in his testimony to the Royal Commission that trying to use a self-rescuer in a real emergency was a different story from training in the classroom. And when was the last time Rockus had an opportunity to train with one? Well, it would turn out that he had not participated in an emergency drill in his two and a half years at the mine. Daniel Rockhouse then loses consciousness. 
and 50 minutes later he recovers. He manages to get to his feet and he calls the control room. In the control room at the time this call comes in is Neville Rockhouse, Daniel's father. Neville worked at the mine as well as too did his other son, Benjamin Rockhouse. Benjamin is one of the 29 miners that died. After this call, Daniel Rockhouse starts to move towards the portal. In coal mining incidents, it's critical for miners to be able to rescue themselves from the mine because any external rescue may take too long to get to them. Mine rescue teams typically can't get underground quickly because of the risk of a toxic environment in the mine and the potential for further explosions. As Rockhouse makes his way out of the mine, he finds Russell Smith lying beside his loader in the drift with his eyes rolled back in his head. He drags him along the ground and they head for the fresh air base, the FAB. Now there are two FABs in the mine, the upper and lower FAB. The upper FAB was deeper in the mine and it did contain self-rescuers and other equipment. But Rockhouse was not heading deeper into the mine, he was heading out of the mine. Which is why he goes to the lower FAB, which is located closer to the portal. But Rockhouse finds it's decommissioned. It had no phone connection to the surface and the self-rescuers had been removed. Now the Royal Commission report doesn't go into detail on why this FAB was decommissioned. But one explanation may be that the lower FAB was once in use at the mine, but it had been decommissioned because it was being replaced by the upper FAB. But this isn't clear. After this discovery, the men continue walking towards the portal and they exit the mine to find no one waiting for them. Somehow, in trying to make sense with what was happening at the mine, Pike personnel had missed sending someone to the portal to meet them. At 5.13pm, Douglas White, the mine manager, takes a helicopter flight up the mountain to find the backup van has been damaged in the explosion. Now this wasn't meant to happen. You don't want an explosion knocking out your backup van. You need your backup van still running to ensure you can ventilate the mine so that there's no buildup of a toxic or explosive atmosphere and that any survivors of the explosion have an increased chance of evacuating the mine. So to avoid these fans being damaged in an explosion, special panels are installed on the top of the fan. If an explosion happens, it should blow off these panels and dissipate any pressure wave so the fan won't be catastrophically damaged. But if you compare, like the Royal Commission did, the size of the panels on this fan with best practice, which is from the US, it turns out that the panel sizes on the Pike River's fan were small. They were half the size they needed to be. This resulted in the fan being badly damaged and it not being restarted to ventilate the mine. So now you've lost the secondary fan and the deadly consequences of putting the primary fan underground, as you heard the only coal mine in the world to do so, becomes apparent. With the secondary fan not working, there's no way to ventilate the mine because the primary fan has either been damaged in the explosion or it's in a methane-rich environment and its sensors will stop it restarting. If it's not possible to ventilate the mine anymore, this means that anyone in the mine that survived the first blast will now be overcome by gas. And it also means there's the potential for further explosions.
and there were three more explosions. And I was determined that no one could have survived these, and the decision was made to seal the mine in January 2011, with the bodies of the 29 miners still inside. So now we come to one of the most disturbing parts of the story. How the miners died. Please be aware that we're about to step through some graphic descriptions and some listeners may find this distressing. The Royal Commission identified four likely causes for how the men died. Firstly, the men closest to the explosion would have been subject to immediate concussion impact and terminal injuries. They would also have been subject to what is described as secondary shrapnel effects, which would have been fatal. Secondly, the pressure wave created by the explosion would have impacted those located further away from the explosion and caused internal tear injuries, which would have included injuries to the lungs and sinuses. Bleeding associated with this, particularly into the lungs, would have caused immediate or delayed death to the men within the main roadways of the mine. Thirdly, the explosion would have also produced carbon monoxide, and inside the confines of a mine, this would have produced a progressive CO buildup in the bloodstream, which prevents the absorption of oxygen. Without a fresh air source due to a loss in ventilation, this would have been fatal. And finally, some may have died from a lack of oxygen, and there was a lack of oxygen because it would have been burned off in the explosion and in any subsequent fire. So fresh air contains 20.9% oxygen, but once this drops and reaches 10%, it can lead to unconsciousness, and at levels less than 6%, it results in death within minutes. So considering these four potential causes of death, the Royal Commission would find that the initial shockwave would likely have been fatal to the men, or it would have left them unconscious. From that point forward, the toxic environment of the mine would have killed any survivors because of an inability to ventilate the mine. So what are the lessons here? How do you condense everything you've just heard into something that allows us to learn? And how do you apply it in your organisation if you're in a high hazard industry? Well, the first lesson is that if you're in coal mining, methane management is critical. But there's nothing new in this finding. The risks of methane are well known. As you heard in the last episode, methane incidents have caused more loss of life than anything else in coal mining. But I think some people will want to stop the discussion right there, because it's tempting to reduce what happened at Pike River to a technical failure, a failure in the design and capability of the methane management system. And there's no doubt that many very serious technical mistakes were made at the mine, like with the gas drainage and the ventilation. But if we stop there, we'll miss so many of the learnings from this tragedy. The question we really need to ask is, while yes, there were technical causes, what were the organisational failures that allowed or even encouraged these technical causes to culminate in disaster? And with Pike River, you see a whole range of organisational failures. There's no doubt production pressures played a huge role, and the introduction of the bonus put a focus squarely on production rather than safety. And this bonus was introduced despite risk assessments clearly showing that the mine did not have all its critical safety systems in place. This information either didn't reach the right people or it wasn't acted upon. And mining began. And there's a general theme here. 
Information just wasn't flowing within the organisation to the people who needed it at almost all levels. We see a board who didn't receive information on whether or not their critical systems to prevent major incidents were working properly. And we see a failure of that board to seek out this information. We see an organisation that was reporting incidents internally, but no one was reviewing or learning from them. We see frontline workers and deputies reporting significant issues, but their reports were not being listened to or not being actioned or simply disappearing. We see training falling behind, which ultimately cripples the workforce's ability to recognise and respond to hazards and to recover from them. We see methane alarm after methane alarm going off in the mine, a clear signal that the gas management system was in distress. But these alarms were becoming normalised to the point that they were happening on an almost daily basis. And on top of this, you have a regulator who is both assuming that all is well at the mine and not receiving information to the contrary. The Pike River tragedy occurred because of a failure to manage methane. But it was the weaknesses of the organisation as a whole that created the environment in which technical failures could occur and result in disaster. Pike River is a warning of what happens if you don't have the organisational consciousness to tackle these issues. This is the lesson from Pike River, paid for with 29 lives. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, a firm that specialises in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.